Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Good day today, and thank you for joining us on the Global Marketing Podcast. And today we welcome Jamie Geltuck, who founded Cultural Mixology 13 years ago. So we were just laughing and saying, last year was the unlucky year, this is the lucky year. So if 13 is an unlucky number, we just changed that. So, so much of communication is culture along with language. And Jamie is an expert at that. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation that we're gonna have on this. So Jamie, welcome today. Thank you so much, Wendy. Thanks for, for inviting me, and I'm really excited to, to share how our, our passions for language and culture may intersect. Excellent. You know, so it, it, it's always fascinating to me how co- people name their companies. Now, I just um, I'm publishing a book and had to come up with a name for the publishing company. And so, you know, just the exercise that we went through. Tell me, how did you name your company Cultural Mixology? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think I was just, I was playing around with a lot of words that had to do with, you know, how all these cultures come together. And I remember being on a walk with my mom one day, and we were just talking about all these words out loud and and cultures and and blending and mixing. And we came up with the idea of, of cultural mixology. And I love it, although I will say sometimes I get contacted by people in the uh, liquor or spirits <laughs> industry who think that I, I actually am in that field <laughs> rather than dealing with culture. And I always tell them that while I occasionally need a drink at the end of the day, um, <laughs> that's totally not my field. So there, there is a little bit of a semantic overlap there. Oh, that's hysterical because you could see that. Oh, I'm, I'm going to a mixology and you know, it's so cultural because I'm going to drink this high class drink. But that's not what you do. So tell us more about what you do with culture yeah. mixology. So, um, so what I do is executive coaching and training with expats and global teams. And in a nutshell, you know, using these different modalities to help people thrive across cultures. And sometimes it's with expats, you know, that are actually relocating somewhere. And oftentimes it's just a global team that has to work across virtual cultural boundaries and figure out how to do that more effectively. So there's so much in there and there's so many different places that we can go, but I would love to hear one of the biggest fails that you've heard about somebody going internationally or a team just combusting because of cultural issues. Yeah. Wow. So a really big, a big fail. Um, it's hard to think of a, a total fail. I mean, I, and hopefully my clients haven't had too many total fails, <laughs> total <laughs> well, fails out there. But I'm but assuming that when you come, they become your client, then, you know, it's all fixed, but, you, you know, they're bringing you in because there's been a fail. Yes, exactly. And people generally, of course, they reach out for help um, across the board when they're, having, when they're having problems, right? And so I would say, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind is a, a Chinese company that I uh, worked with a couple of years ago, and they had a U.S. subsidiary here, and they didn't have really any um, Chinese representation here. And so just by the time they called, you know, over the course of of three years, um, the trust and the relationships had totally diminished um, to a point that it almost wasn't workable anymore. And so really what what we did, I I had a wonderful co-facilitator that I brought down with me to their facilities. And, you know, we did. But hang on before you get into how you fixed it. What did it look like when you walked in? How was the trust broken? What were people doing? How was it affecting the business? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think a lot of the typical ways there was really low morale there um, an inability to to collaborate people just completely butting heads between the headquarters in China and the facilities here in terms of how you know how to move forward with projects and leading to projects just coming to a total standstill and so yeah things were very much at a halt on every level I would say and were people even talking to each other? 
you know, of course, there's some interaction that that needs to happen between the the headquarters in, in China and the subsidiary here. But uh, talking to each other and having productive conversations are not always the same the same thing. Right. So, okay. Yeah. And so they were. So it's Chinese headquarters, and then all people from the U.S. here, or what yeah, kind of? So, mm-hmm, so a production facility here in the U.S. So no yeah. understand no cultural training of how Chinese and American production would differ. Yeah. And, you know, I think some of the leadership had obviously been um, over to China for some meetings and had some interaction, but it just had reached a point where it was not working. Things were just at a standstill over time. And I think in this case, maybe they waited uh, a little too long um, before addressing it, which, you know, sometimes happens. And you can see that. You can see the leaders here just going, oh my God, they just don't, they just don't understand. Leadership doesn't understand. They don't understand. They do it wrong. They, why did they say this? So, and then leadership here, then, then all the employees start hearing that. And so it's us against them. Exactly. It really filters down a lot from the top. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not to blame anybody there, right? I think it's a natural reaction yeah. when, we, when we feel frustrated um, to sometimes, you know, not when we don't know how to address it. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And so we don't know right. what to do. Right. But that's a, it's a common thing, particularly across countries. Like I heard one, an example the other day in one of the podcasts that I was doing uh, with Bill tongue he's uh he was fascinating because he said at one point he was in japan and he said oh yeah our our thoughts are parallel you know so let's move forward and the team reacted poorly to that and somebody later on at dinner explained to him that if your thoughts are parallel there's no intersection so you don't see eye to eye you're not connecting and so how that seemingly innocent statement caused a huge understanding misunderstanding that's such a great example, absolutely, yeah. of, the, of the way we, we use language or the way we even use idioms or expressions without, without thinking sometimes about the interpretation. So what was going on with the Chinese team and the U.S. team? Like what kind of communication issues were they having? Yeah, and so, you know, I would say one of, and this is really common, is that one of the Um, challenges in cultural training is that you often only get one side of the story. And part of that is, you know, purely geography, right? I mean, we can't always bring a team from China and the U.S. together to to do a training for one day or, um, you know, so in most cases, that is part of the challenge is that you're you're hearing one side of the story and there are always three sides, right? I mean, each side has its truth and then there's what's probably really going on. And so, you know, without going into, you know, too many details, because I like to keep my, you know, my, my clients details confidential, but, you know, um, as I said, it was just um, a lot of communication breakdown and and not understanding how to um, compromise and maybe also feeling that on the Chinese side, there was not a good enough understanding of the U.S. market and the requirements that customers have here. And so just wanting to push down from the top, which I think can happen even domestically, right? Right. Just wanting to push down from the top the way that they wanted things done without considering how things might need to be localized um, to an environment here. Oh, interesting. Okay. So often we hear about people from the United States going to other countries and saying, you're going to do it our way, the American way. But this time you had it the opposite, where it was exactly. do it the Chinese way coming into the United States and the people responding to it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Can you give, give an example? Of course, confidentially, completely understood, but it's, it's always good to get into the nuts and bolts of where cultural differences show up. Yeah, so I think it had to do a lot in the um, approval of, of designs and layouts and, um, you know, things for, for the market here. And, you know, I even experienced that in my, my first job. Um, I worked in a, a French furniture company and we just looked at even like the scaling of products, like the scaling of products from the, the French headquarters were too small for the sizes of American homes. And so, you know, you, you often need to, to adjust things like that to the market that you're working in and 
So in, going back to the example of the, the Chinese company, you know, I think the, the people in the U.S. on the ground felt that they really had a better understanding of modifications that would need to be made for the market here. And on the Chinese side, you know, they did not understand that. Um, they didn't want to make the modifications. They wanted more to push down the way that they wanted things done, which is also, you know, probably a bit of hierarchy um, coming into play from a cultural standpoint as well. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it's interesting because that can, it's culture Chinese English, but it's also company culture. Because if you mm -hmm. have a company culture that says top down, this is what we're going to do and you don't listen and people touching the consumer saying, well, they're not going to buy because of this. So yeah, and culture exists on so many levels, right? I mean, there's there's the culture of, of the teams that work together. There's the culture of the company, like you just said. There's the national culture that may or may not override the company culture nationally. Um, so it's uh, there's generational culture, and so really there are so many layers, and it, it's you know it's never usually just one. It's usually like a, a ball of yarn that's been all <laughs> all tied up together that you have to unravel. Okay, so you go into this, production is down, people are mad, they're unhappy, they're not collaborating, they're not figuring out the right way to do. So who decides to hire you? Was it the U.S. Um, or China? Yeah, so um, it, it came out of the U.S. and it was actually kind of a, a funny global referral because the someone in the company had reached out to someone that they knew in South America. And that person said, I know someone great in the U.S. that can work with you. And so it was kind of funny. It's this Chinese company with this U.S. Uh, subsidiary who reaches out to someone in South America that bounces to me in New York. And so just the whole way it came about was, was such a, a mix of cultures to begin with. Um, right. Yeah. And so, but really the request did come from, from the U.S. I think they felt that they needed to do something. Okay. And, and so what's the first thing that you do when you walk into this very on fire situation? Yeah. Well, most of the I mean, time is what you do. Most of the time you're coming in when there's a problem. Right. And so, I mean, the first thing really that, that I do is try to understand, you know, through multiple conversations in advance, what, what exactly is, is going on and, you know, maybe sometimes what the problems are behind the problems that are being articulated. Um, but more importantly, you know, I think when people come with problems in general, they talk about what they don't want to go on or what they want to stop. And I think it's important to ask people what they want people to start doing. Um, and especially with the training, you know, trainings have limitations. So, <clears throat> you know, you, you really want to understand from a, a potential client what, um, what would success look like for you at the end of this day? I mean, the, the success long-term is, is different, but what are you hoping to achieve by the, by the end of this day? And so, you know, in this case, they really just wanted greater insight into some of the gaps um, and how, you know, maybe the decision-making worked, relationship building worked. They really wanted to understand what, what was the opposite perspective that they might be missing um, in this case. Okay. All right. So that's, that's very interesting to me because you're really setting a vision. What would success look like? So there's a lot of listening to let them get it off their chest, but then you're, you're getting them to set a vision, which I'm sure that's kind of hard for them to, to it do. Is. But it's important because I think one of the, you know, one of the critiques of my, my own industry is that, you know, people will promise and say, I'll, I'll go in and I'll, I'll do a day of, of China cultural training. And, you know, that's maybe talking about 1 billion people in China, not your team in China. And so I need to understand, you know, what's, what are the dynamics of your team so that, of course, within the, you know, the confines of, of generalities, we can be a little bit more specific about it. So I, I think that's really important. Right. Okay. So you've just brought it down to, there's the, so I'm rephrasing something you said before, is that there's the national culture, company culture, team culture, and then it could even be an individual's culture. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, many, you know, many many problems um, are on the individual level. And uh, my colleague, I have a colleague in the Netherlands and we, we 
published an article last year called Don't Invest in Cross-Cultural Training You Don't Need, which, <laughs> which is, might seem a little bit strange, but um, our, our point was exactly that what you just said, which is let's figure out really what the problem is first. Like sometimes culture is the scapegoat. So let's actually go through and figure out what is the problem? Because it might be an individual personality thing. It might have something to do with the culture of the teams. It may not be that you need a training on working with China. <laughs> um, right. So we're, you know, we may be talking ourselves out of a job a little bit, but, um, but I think that from an integrity standpoint, you, you can't, you can't just promise if I talk about doing business in China, that it's going to be applicable to your team. That is so, I definitely want to read that article because I think you, <laughs> you captured it so nicely is, is if I hear that there's a cultural consultant that wants to come in and do a training, I'm like, what, what, the only people that are going to show up are the ones who are already culturally attuned. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much more discussion that has to start beforehand to understand what the issue is and then to set a vision. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you go in and you talk to them. They're telling you all about what they don't want to, to look like anymore. You're mm -hmm. rephrasing it to try to get them to talk about to what you want them to start doing and setting a vision. So what happens mm -hmm. after that then? Yeah. So um, in this case, and you know what happens after that is is always different in terms of approach. But in this case, um, what I decided to do was bring in um, a, a good colleague of mine who's bicultural. She um, was born and raised and educated in Hong Kong and has worked between the U.S. and uh, mainland China for a long time and has been in the U.S. also for 20 something years. And so what we decided the best approach was, was really to bring that bicultural perspective um, to this team. And it, it's equally important to me in general, before we think about the other, whoever that other is, to think about ourselves. And so we can't ever hope to understand, you know, what a Chinese pattern of decision making might look like until we understand what an American pattern oh, might look like. And right. so we really wanted to bring not only that perspective, but the comfort level of having, you know, people from both cultures and she and I have worked together for a long time. So we're very comfortable, you know, bouncing off of each other um, and really do a little bit of, you know, raising of awareness of how, you know, the people in the room where they might be falling on some different cultural aspects and just uh, decision making communication. Um, and then also present what might be going on, you know, on the Chinese side by listening to some of their examples and, you know, really drilling down. So that was kind of the next step in this process. So you did talk to people on the Chinese side to help no, to get so, there? Um, or so she wasn't. Yeah, but she was sort of, <clears throat> she was the representative okay. um, of what a typical mindset might look like. And so she had the ability to, you know, just like as Americans, we might listen to a story and if, and we're, we're able to identify if that's sort of within the range of what might happen in the U.S. or that's like a total outlier. Right. And so what, you know, what she was able to do is when we were kind of um, drilling down on what was going on with them, it was more easy, it was easier for her to identify, okay, this falls within a typical cultural pattern that I'm hearing, or this may be something that's really unique to this company or the team. And so because that's, um, because that's a native culture for her, she was better able to spot some of those things than I would be, for example. Of course, that makes sense. Because if we walk into a place and see somebody doing something uh, like I always think of manners in the US we have one hand on the table and one hand on our lap but if you go over to Europe you've got both hands on the table and it's rude to have one hand on your lap so that's the kind of subtlety that you'd never pick up on on your own culture unless somebody had pointed it out so she can listen to the stories and really point out those intersection points where there's clashing rather than working well together exactly okay all right yeah okay so you do bring the people in so they're understanding their self and then she's giving feedback on what might be happening on the other side due to a, a national culture issue mm -hmm. and then what happened in this situation 
Yeah. And so, you know, we did, uh, it was a full day of training. And so we went through a lot of different aspects of, of culture and, and some history and values that, you know, support each of the cultures to see how they, how they end up being the way they are. Um, we did some interactive, you know, uh, activities to, to help people, you know, reframe their approach. And then ultimately we, we wanted everybody to end up with some action steps. So, you know, working in, in small groups to figure out what are some of the very next things they are going to do uh, to, to take the learnings forward. And so how much did language come into this? Yeah, I think for sure language is always language is always a factor. You know, it's, uh, it's just like the example you gave before with your, your, um, your guest or the, the colleague that was working in Japan and using expressions and, you know, not always translating them correctly. I mean, I can pretty safely say I don't think there was anybody in the room that actually spoke Mandarin. <laughs> and so, you know, just at a baseline, it's, you know, you have one side that doesn't speak the other side's language. And then you have the other side, the Chinese side that is using English as a second, who knows, maybe a third language. And so, of course, that is going to, to lead to misunderstandings, not, not just semantic ones, but I think in the way we, we use language to, to mm -hmm. begin with. Right. Cause language really affects the way you think. Exactly. In the Mandarin language, there's multiple words for one English word that we have in English, which is love. And I have a funny story on that that I'll tell someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I mean, it's what we call a high context language, right? And so it also means that um, the, the words that we use communicate something about the context. So for example, if I tell you in English that I have a sister, um, you don't know if my sister is older or younger. But if I told you in Mandarin that I have a sister, you would know by the word I used if that were an older sister or a younger sister. And I remember working with a, a client from China a few years ago, and he was asking me, what's the word for um, like my grandmother, but on my mother's side? And I was like, oh, well, there's just one word. Um, it's just grandmother, whether it's on your father's side or your mother's side. And it was such an interesting conversation because for him, that was really lacking context to explain something to me about the family structure. Right. Okay. So that's a high context language that would have words that are very specific, whereas the U.S. would be classified as a low context language. Right. So if you look at a, um, a spectrum from low to high, and, and I would say it's more about um, higher low context communication even than language. The language is simply a reflection of the, the communication style. Um, but absolutely, the U.S., um, the Netherlands, Canada, all very low context cultures, which means that, you know, our, our, our communication is more literal. It's a little bit more say what you mean, mean what you say, whereas a high context culture not only takes a lot of context into account, but it tends to be a little bit more indirect. So one way I describe it is when it comes to listening, low context is like listening with your ears, but high context is like listening with your five senses. That's fascinating. I've never heard that before. So high con tell me more about high context with all five senses. Yeah. So, you know, in a high context culture, you are, you're paying attention to a lot of nonverbals. Uh, it doesn't mean that nonverbals don't count in every kind of communication. Of course, they absolutely do, but they're weighted more heavily in a higher context culture. So we might be noticing the way someone's dressed. I, I once had a French client tell me, well, the first thing I notice when I walk in a room is how well someone's shoes are shined, right? So that's sending something about your appearance, for example, is sending a message about your communication. Um, it could be the place that you choose to hold a business meeting. So like in my experiences in Japan, you know, I've, I've been taken to some lovely meetings um, at wonderful restaurants and it's a way of, of communicating something about the relationship. 
Whereas, you know, here I'm in New York City, um, of course, pre-COVID, it's, you know, it's nice to have a nice meal, but whether we grab something and take it back to the office or we go out to a nice meal, we're not necessarily using that as part of um, sending a message to somebody. So it's really looking at all of these different uh, nonverbals and as, as part of that listening process. That is such a hot area for causing cultural communication issues because, yeah, yeah, Yeah. I was going to say that, you know, aside from kind of all of the theory about it, the, the tangible way that I see it play out most often is in what we might call the yes, no conundrum, meaning that a low context culture, yes is yes, no is no, maybe is maybe, but in a high context culture, you will tend to always get the word yes, there's not always the use of, of, of a no uh, from a semantic perspective. The message is there, but the word is not used. So you need to determine whether it's a yes, yes, or a yes, no, or a yes, maybe. And that's where kind of like in Japan, there's an expression to read the air, right? Or so listening with your five senses, that's where all of that really comes in. So that's interesting because when um, uh, people from the U.S., use talk about the high context cultures they'll say well you'll get a yes but you need to make sure it's a yes and they struggle with trying to figure out when it's a yes yes or a yes no exactly in fact one of my favorite books is about working um between Mexicans and U.S. Americans. And I think it's the very first sentence that says, of all the people in the world, only the Americans are so sure there's a clear difference between yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. Excellent. And so it's more than just about saving face. If you say, if you're in Japanese and say no to somebody. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is is obviously saving face, um, but that's tied into other aspects of the culture, right? I mean, a lot of the reason that that saving face is is important in certain cultures is because those cultures are more group oriented, and so there are more more people that could potentially be impacted or offended by you know by saying something like no. Uh, Whereas in the US, for example, we're so much more individualistic. And so, you know, we don't always consider if I say no to a work colleague that may not have the ripple effect of of everyone else in my world, because you're you're my work friend, you're not my you're not my neighbor, you're not my school friend, you're not my workout buddy, right? You're not any of these other people. So I'm I'm maybe feel uh, more of a freedom to be a little bit more direct. So if you're working, if you come from a low context culture and you're going to a high context culture, it's huge just to understand what the difference is, but how else can you learn the subtleties? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say, you know, one of the easiest tips that I give people, and it it usually seems obvious when I say it out loud, but don't ask yes, no questions, (laughs) right? So if you're not, if you're not sure if if it's going to be a yes or a no, ask something more open-ended. So, you know, rather than asking if um, the project will be finished by Friday, you might say, by when will it be finished? Or you might ask how much has already been completed, right? And so it's a, a simple, though not always easy way to navigate that aspect. And especially because I think when there are significant language barriers, we like to boil things down to a very simple communication. So we think if we just ask for a yes or no, that we're actually doing everyone a favor. Um, but it's, it's actually the worst kind of question you could ask in a high context culture. Okay. So, which goes back to, if you want to connect with anybody or in sales training, they always say, and even with your kids to get them talking, don't ask yes, no questions, ask open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. So to build a relationship, to get more clarity, to engage, Mm -hmm. ask open-ended questions. So that's a, that's a good Good rule. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good rule in general, right? It's just that, like I said, sometimes 
when we do feel the, the pressure or the tension of a language barrier, we think that by making things as simplistic as possible, that we're, we're doing ourselves or the other person a favor. But it, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't usually work that way. All right. So say you're an executive that you're, you know, or you're an entrepreneur and you're going to start selling internationally now and you're mm -hmm. going off to your first country mm -hmm. and you want to understand whether it's high or low context, you want to understand language issues. How, what would you do to prepare yourself? What do you need to research and what do you need to be able to do that would transfer across this country you're going mm -hmm. into and then the next one? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, a few things come to mind. Um, the first, although a little bit counterintuitive, I would tell that person to read a book about their own culture. So I would first want people to raise their awareness of, of how they do things because likely culture, uh, I mean, there, there's a quote, right? Culture is most invisible to it to its own participants. And so, you know, likely when we're just the a fish in our own pond, we don't realize what we do because everyone around us does things somewhat similarly. So the first thing I would want that person to do is read a book about their own culture. Um, after that, you know, I think there's- Wait, 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 some, hold on. What book would you recommend? Yeah. For people in the U.S. or America, what book would I um, recommend for in the if you're American going overseas? Yes, um, there's a great. I mean, this is classic. It's old, but it's not dated. Um, Robert Coles um, has a great. It's just like a PDF, like the values that Americans live by, which is a great book, and it kind of leads into the next thing that I would that I would say, because this is a book about all cultures, but one of my current favorite books is The Culture Map by Erin Meyer. Um, I'm not sure if you've had the chance to pick that one up yet, but it looks I've at- I've heard about it, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, yeah it looks at all, um, all different cultures and, and the author, Erin Meyer, is an American who is married to a Frenchman and she teaches at INSEAD in France. And so she really, touches, especially from an American perspective, but she really touches on a lot of different cultures across dimensions. And the reason that I'm such a fan of that book and her work is because I think it's some of the most recent and cutting edge research on cultural differences. And it's true that cultures evolve slowly over time. Cultures don't necessarily evolve very, very quickly, but I think that a lot of cultural dimension work is very dated today. And so I, I really like her research because it's very current. And so what you could do by reading that book is identify where you are. She gives a lot of nice spectrums and you could identify where the culture that you're moving to is and then look for where those gaps are. So it's basically like a gap analysis. Okay, so that would be step number three is do your gap analysis. All right, mm -hmm. so then what do you do? Um, then something I might recommend is really to look for a cultural mentor. So I might look to connect with somebody who has either already made the move or started a business in that culture um, and someone who, who can share sort of that that outsider perspective on getting established and someone that you can, you know, bounce ideas off of. So sometimes a good source for that is through like, um, like if you were from the U.S. and moving abroad, like a chamber of commerce, right? Like an American AmCham um, in another country um, through events that, you know, the U.S. embassies or consulates hold through, you know, networking groups and, I would want to look for some outsiders that have already done what, what I'm looking to do. Okay. That's, so it's always <laughs> build your network. <laughs> it really is. Find I mean, people that can help. Why not learn from the people that have, you know, that have already uh, walked the path, walked the path before you. And I think more importantly are, are on the ground where you're going. Cause it, it's always a little bit different um, being on the ground somewhere than what you read, of course, in, in the books. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now you've read, you've done your gap analysis, you find your person to talk to. What mm -hmm. do you do then? I mean, at a certain point, you've got you've to dive in, right? I mean, you're, you're never going to have it perfect. Um, I, I think, you know, part of the, the joy of 
working across cultures and learning is the mistakes that we make along the way and ultimately that we can look back and you know reflect on as as lessons so i'm not sure i could identify anyone who's who's gone overseas and done it perfectly <laughs> without without making any mistakes so you you've got to take your first step okay all right so you lived in france for a while right um, I did. I lived there um, as a student. I lived there for an internship. And after college uh, for my first job, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time at um, our factories in Lyon and our, um, some Paris furniture shows. I was in the furniture industry. Okay. So tell me about what was shocking to you to live over there and how you adjusted. Or maybe it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if I did it at this stage in my life, you know, now being in this field, you have to remember, I wasn't necessarily in this field at the time. So I don't think I had all of the, the language and tools to describe, um, describe the differences that that I have now. But I think one thing that that definitely sticks out is and, and I'm American. So, you know, realizing just how optimistic Americans are about everything. Like it, it just comes through in our language constantly. Like, oh, that's a great question, right? I mean, how many questions are really great questions? They're not, <laughs> right? But where we say like, I'm so happy to be here. And it's like, why are you happy to be here? <laughs> You're not. And so it, you don't even realize the extent to which this optimism, which of course comes from American history, really infiltrates everything we say all the time. And you know, I, I would not put optimism at the, the top of a French value list. Again, it's not a criticism. It's just a, it's just right. a difference. And so you know, I think you really start noticing the way you talk. It, you're like, oh, wow, like I sound really like, I sound like that cheery, smiley, <laughs> like, like everything is always great American. So um, that definitely sticks out in, in my, my time in France. What, what is it about the U.S. history that makes people so optimistic? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the, the history of this country and the, you know, the Europeans that came over here, they were optimistic and hopeful about finding a better life, right? So just from the get-go, you have, you have that as, as a baseline that so many um, European settlers were just hopeful. They were looking for something better. And then you could also look at just the, you know, a lot of the expansion of this country, the way people moved west, the way they um, went out to the west coast for the gold rush, right? There were a lot of, of things that drew people across this country that were predicated on hope and, and optimism. Even the idea of manifest destiny, which we talk a lot about with, with American history, right? The idea that it was you know, um, the God-given uh, right, virtue, mission to push West across the continent. Um, and of course, we could, we could debate the interpretation and the effect of all of that <laughs> from another perspective too. But if we just look at a lot of those narratives that permeate our education here, um, you know, it's a very optimistic, optimistic culture. We, we talk very positively. We often really look for the bright side of things, not just on the, the big levels, but on the, on the micro level too, like, you know, in terms of how we might give feedback, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, the typical American, you know, we may say Americans are very di direct, but the, the truth is we're, we're only direct when it comes to positive feedback, right? So when, when we have to give Ameri uh, negative feedback, Americans will typically do that, that sandwich format, right? They'll be like, yeah. Wendy, that was a really good start on the podcast idea you know, I might change just everything about it. And then I think it'll be fantastic. Right. So, <laughs> and so to, a, to a, a French ear, for example, the first thing they hear sounds good. And the last thing they hear sounds good. And they're wondering why is that like, where is the actual feedback? Right. Because the, the paradigm in France would be no news is good news, right? If I don't say anything, you're doing your job well. I don't need to constantly tell you good job. That might be condescending. And when I have to give you negative feedback, I'm going to be direct about it. So it's actually the, almost the reverse of how we do it here. Oh, fascinating. 
Right. So then you ca cause a lot of confusion for people coming in, not, well, what are you trying to say to me? Exactly. And so that's why I said, you know, culture is most invisible to, to its own participants. I mean, Americans don't necessarily realize that we listen in the middle for negative feedback. I mean, we do. Like you would walk away from that, that you know, that pretend uh, feedback session thinking she wants me to change everything about it. But that's yeah. because that's how you're, you're trained to hear it. Someone that's used to more direct negative feedback would not hear it that way. Which is, okay, so that means that we give feedback in, in stages of three. So, could you get your, you know, I've heard it called the shit sandwich. Mm -hmm. So, if it's something negative, but then if it's something positive, you only hear the positive. But, but I know a lot of people who can't take in the positive. Is that almost like you're living so much in this optimism and hope and good job that that's what makes people harder on themselves internally in the US? Well, I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of the, the challenges that I, I see with my clients or, or something they ask often is, well, if everything is good, how do I know if anything is good? And so it's really a question of distinguishing what is just sort of greasing the wheels, right? Like if, I, if I'm your, your manager and I look at something and I'm like, looks good, nice work, good job. That's just sort of like, okay, status quo. We're on, we're on the right track. Um, and I think more meaningful feedback, and, and we could all learn to give better feedback uh, even in our own culture, but more meaningful feedback, I, I generally tell people is, is connected to a reason, right? So, you know, Wendy, that was a really great podcast because I just learned three things I didn't know about working in Japan, right? So that can have a little bit more weight than just the, the niceties that, that, again, grease the wheels of, of communication, particularly in the U.S., which is all the big thing on parenting when they're talking about praising your kids, just don't praise all the time, but get into the specifics of why, and then they can hear it more clearly. Exactly. And, and you know, like I said, to, to be clear, I think we could all, even within our own cultures, learn, number one, more effective ways to give feedback, and number two, various ways to give feedback. So, I, you know, I, there's more than just um, the the shit sandwich, so to speak, in terms of giving feedback. I don't know that that's necessarily the, the most effective way, um, but it's certainly the, the pattern that by default, most of us fall into because these things come, tend to come from education, right? We don't just show up in the working world and all of a sudden uh, have these behaviors. So the way we receive feedback from teachers, the way we um, interact with teachers and from a hierarchical perspective, all of those things lay the groundwork for how we show up in the workplace. So that's been a cultural way of communications for decades then. I mean, it's for ages, which is so funny because I tie the, the, the pattern and how to do that to, to the Mary Kay company because she wrote mm. a book on how to give feedback to keep your employees motivated or, you know, I don't know if she wrote a book, but I think of her as coining that phrase, mm -hmm. you know, not, not coining that process, not the phrase, the shit sandwich, but then it got commonly known as that. But so she just identified something that we already do in the United States due to our culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think if, you know, if we look at you know, how teachers uh, give feedback to kids in school or how they do grading, for example, you know, I mean, grading, it, it's a great example of, of culture that filters into the workplace. So, you know, in the U.S., it's very much like A for effort. Um, you can get a 4.0, you can get uh, perfect grades. The idea of perfection uh, is just that. It's an idea. It's an attainable idea. When I went to school in France, you know, if the, the grading goes from zero to 20, if I got 15, that was amazing. Nobody's getting 20. So perfection is an ideal in France. And so to get 20 would mean I should be the professor. So I'll, I'll never attain that. 
And so if we translate that to the workplace, you know, it's another challenge I often see with, with the, the leaders I work with. Um, you know, if you're coming in from, from France or, or Germany or the UK and you have a team of Americans here and you, it's performance evaluation time, you don't understand why your American team is rating themselves five out of five out on everything and four out of five on everything. It, it seems crazy from that perspective. And that again, really goes back to, to education and how we received grades. Which also then gives the reputation to Americans as very cocky and self-assured and full sure. of themselves. Sure, like there's no room for improvement. I'm perfect, right? But, yeah. you know, can you imagine an, an American, typical American in the workplace rating themselves like a three and being like, I'm not so good at something? I mean, it's just not part of the, <laughs> the cultural <laughs> fabric, right, to, to do that. Right. So how, so it goes back to exactly what you were talking about is you've got to read and understand your culture. You've got to read about the other culture, do the gap analysis, and then you've got to just go in very aware of it. And I think you need to make culture a, a point of conversation, right? I mean, especially if, if we're talking about performance reviews, this is a really big deal across global companies because if we have things like promotions and raises that are dependent on the way we score things, and then we have a, a leader and a team that are using two different rules of the game, so to speak, it really leaves the door open for, for discrepancy. And so I think, you know, having a conversation about, let's just say our, our scoring is, is one to five, like what does a five look like? What does a four look like? What does a three look like? Really articulating those things um, on a cross-cultural team is incredibly important because there's a lot at stake. So that's why you see more of the grids on the large companies or the global companies, which is this is what a five looks like, this is what a four, and it's really described out in detail. Mm -hmm. That yeah, makes a lot more sense exactly. now. Yeah. And, and beyond that, you know, if you are, a, a no, no matter what side you're on, but I'd say usually I'm on, more on the, the leader side, right? So if you have a direct report rating themselves a four or a five, you know, I would want to ask some questions, you know, what does that five mean to you? Like, what is it? What is a, what would, what did the four look like? And, you know, give me an example of, of where you're at it at a five, right? So you, it's kind of like those open-ended questions again, but going right. back to, to understanding that because shared language does not equal shared meaning. All right, so I got a question for you that I've wondered about for years, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can give me more of a cultural understanding why this would be. Public speaking, I've heard from people that attend international events that uh, people from the U.S., I, I, Americans, but you know the the issue with that is people from South America are Americans too because yes. they live in the America. But, but I'm going to use yep. Americans just absolutely. To um, so Americans are known as as being more willing or better public speakers, whereas other people are more dry as public speakers. Europeans, I'm thinking. Where does, is there a cultural element to that that might explain it? Or does it just go back to we train more for public speaking in the U.S.? Yeah, I think it's both. So, I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is just that, again, you know, on any, like if we were looking at the dimension of individual versus group orientation with culture, pretty much by any study on the planet, Americans are the most individualistic people. Yes. Um, in addition to that, you know, risk taking is somewhat built into our culture and we can go back to history, right? The risks that people took when they came here. So when you combine things like individualism, risk taking, and you look at how that plays out in education, right? So if you think about it from the time Americans are in nursery school, you're being asked to do show and tell, right? You're being asked to bring in like your favorite doll and yeah. talk about in front of the whole circle why this is, you know, your favorite. And so we are 
trained from a very young age doesn't mean everybody's personality is is like that. I mean, personally, I'm more introverted. So things like that were, you know, were very nerve wracking for me. But, you know, it, in generalities, you know, we are being trained to do that from a young age because of the focus on egalitarian dynamics with teachers, for example, we are trained to raise our hand. We are graded very heavily on participation. We are encouraged to ask questions, even ask challenging questions. It's not a rote learning environment like you have, um, for example, in many parts of Asia, or it's not more based on theory, like a lot of European education systems are, are more theory than, than practicality. And so I think all of these things, the fact that we are graded on participation, that we have to speak up, we have to raise our hands, we have to talk, we're trained to be individuals, that's okay, that's encouraged, it's accepted, you know, ultimately produces a lot of people who feel very comfortable as adults getting up and charismatically, you know, talking to, talking to a group. And, and I'm going to go back to that idea of perfection being an ideal or an idea. You know, it's, you know, we can be good enough, right? <laughs> we can be good enough. We can feel like what we have to say is great. doesn't need to be perfect and just get up there and do it. I knew there were so many more layers to it. I'm so <laughs> glad you explained that to me because I look at, you know, the, the speakers and it's not education and knowledge and ability, mm -hmm. but there's so much more behind it that it's not just as easy to take somebody who's grown up that much with a group orientation, less risk-taking, years and years of education and training and say, okay, now we're going to drop you into the class and teach exactly. you how to speak in front of a group. Yes, I think it's really, a, it's obviously a confluence of factors, but, you know, I always kind of go back to history and education, and I think if we look at the patterns that, you know, we've, we've experienced and studied, that it, it often explains a lot of, you know, what shows up in the, in the adult world, so to speak. Right, right. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. I could go on for hours asking you about this because there's a whole list of questions I haven't gotten to, but we're running out of time. So I'm going to put, put go over to um, some more personal questions to get to know about you, which we didn't, we didn't sure. dig into your background much. Um, but I'd love to know your favorite foreign word. Oh, so this definitely changes on a regular basis, depending oh, yeah. on what, I, what I'm learning or reading or hearing. But I'd say at the moment, it's actually a, a Yiddish expression or a, a Hebrew expression from my, my grandmother that we've been saying a lot in my family, which is Zisa Hintala, which means uh, like sweet little puppy, because I, I have a wonderful puppy nephew that's now in my family for two years. And whenever my nine, almost 93-year-old grandmother um, is around the puppy. She says, ah, Zisa Hintala, Zisa Hintala. And so we have just started saying this on repeat. And it's really one of my favorite words right now. Oh my gosh, that's so warm to think about when you look at your little nephew. And that's such a fun age. I love two-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, two-year-old puppy, by the way. It's not oh, a, it is a puppy. It's not a puppy. No, it's really a puppy. So we've all learned how to say sweet puppy in Yiddish. Yes. Oh, no. Okay, so would you ever use it for a little cute little human being or it would only be a puppy? I, um, you would probably say like Zisa for, for a sweet, but I don't think you would say, I think Hintala is more is, is really more referring to the dog. Don't 100% quote me on that, but growing up hearing my grandparents speak Yiddish, I don't feel like they ever referred to any of the grandchildren as... <laughs> Sweet <laughs> little puppy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's an awesome name for a dog. That's <laughs> <laughs> really cute. Uh -huh. All right, and how about your favorite vacation? Yeah, so I'd say I've been fortunate to see to see a lot of the world. So it would be hard, of course, again to pick one place. But I, I think I've been most fascinated by places that are far flung. So for me, like going to Sri Lanka or going to Mauritius, I've really felt like wow, you're, you're halfway around the world. Like I, I remember being on the plane to Mauritius and flying over that 
Madagascar mass and you're just like, when are you ever literally over Madagascar? <laughs> like this is like this is normally just that spot on the map that you you know sticks out. And so, you know, I would say um, going to places like that have been cool. And my my dream trip, perhaps post COVID, is to go to Easter Island off the coast of Chile, of Chile. Oh right, right. I think if I flew over Madagascar, I'd be singing the whole time. Yeah. I like to move it, move it. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, since you since you bring up that that Madagascar movie, just a um, I love to to show that movie to children that are moving overseas. I think it's a great metaphor for. Um, you know, the, the animals in the movie not initially wanting to leave New York, not knowing how to adapt, needing to make new friends, try new foods, and then being sad to leave at the end. So I've actually used that movie so many times when I've done uh, trainings for, for children that are about to move overseas. That is great. That is so incredible. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it captures it exactly. Yeah. Next time you watch it, think about it from that perspective. So maybe, maybe I'm going too deep with the movie, but, uh, <laughs> but no, I think there, is, there are lessons there. Yeah, yeah. And that they learn and they survive and then they can thrive and adapting yeah. and yeah. And they're even sad to leave when the boat comes to pick them up. Them up so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about your most rewarding cross-cultural experience? Mm, my most rewarding cross-cultural experience. Mm, how do you define rewarding? You could take it anyway. I, I <laughs> left it as an open-ended question. <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, one of, um, I, I've had the opportunity to, to date a lot of people across cultures and and those have been rewarding in, in the way that you really do get to experience um, another place or culture on a, a level that you would never be able to just as a, a visitor in another country or, you know, just a tourist um, or, you know, it, it's really to be welcomed into people's homes and appreciate their traditions and their foods. And that's why I always say there are no inexperienced uh, people when it comes to culture. If you learned a language or you've dated someone from another culture or you've traveled, there are so many ways to have experiences. Right. No matter where you are. So what, are you talking about dating somebody in a different country or dating somebody of a different culture while living in New York? I have done both. And so I would be referring to both experiences. Okay. So right here in the United yeah. States, you can yeah. learn about a culture just by dating somebody from it and staying Absolutely. open. Yeah. Trying yeah. The, the food and celebrating holidays and traditions. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Um, what final recommendations would you have for people on doing business internationally across languages and cultures? Mm, I guess just that you have to expect it's going to feel uncomfortable. That is a normal part of the process. So to do anything differently than we've done for 10 years, 20, 30, 40, our whole lives is going to feel uncomfortable. And Sometimes, you know, there's a saying, when you go abroad, the first stranger you meet is yourself. And <laughs> that, that is the, that's the growth opportunity. That's what you're signing up for. So if you want to do everything the same way, if you want to feel comfortable, eat the same food, uh, use the same business practices, there's no need to, to do this. But if you do accept the, the challenge of the adventure, then along with that is going to come some of that initial discomfort that that pushes you to grow. And I, and I would say, you know, when I think about people that I've worked with as they set off on these adventures and then, you know, once they're settled or if they return, you know, if they're an expat and they're returning home and when people tell you their stories, they never recount kind of all of the, I mean, maybe humorously, but they never talk about all of the, like the stress in the beginning, like really what fills their mind and their memories are, you know, the, the funny stories and then the, the experiences that, that they've had. So. Right, right. I think that's excellent advice. Okay. So if somebody wants to reach out and get some advice from you or bring you into their company to help deal with any of the culture issues they have going on, or they have any other questions, how can they reach you? 
You can find uh, me through the website, culturalmixology.com, um, email info at culturalmixology.com, and then all the social media channels. So on Twitter and Clubhouse, it's just my name, Jamie Gelbtuck. And can you Instagram. go ahead and spell your name so people yeah, have that? Yeah, of course. Uh, J-A-M-I-E-G-E-L-B-T-U-C-H. So that's on Twitter and Clubhouse. And then on Instagram, it's just cultural.mixology. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I learned so much and answering some of the questions that I've had for, for ages that I don't think I have questions about. But as we're talking about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, let's just keep going deeper and deeper on this. So well, this thank you. so fun, Wendy. Thank you for inviting me. And I learn something every time I, I work with someone <laughs> or do things like this. So I, equally, I learn too. And it was such a fun way to spend part of the morning. Thank you. So listeners, I hope you learned something today and that you'll go grab the book and read, read about what it's like to be an American. And if you did learn something, give us a five-star rating or forward the podcast on to somebody else who might be moving internationally or who isn't from the United States to help them, help them understand why we do things in the United States. And I hope you tune in next time. Have a great day wherever you are. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.